Hello everybody and welcome to the first in our series of CUSP podcasts, an initiative from the Cultures for Sustainable and Inclusive Peace project that's hosted by the UNESCO chair at the University of Glasgow and funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council's Global Challenge Research Fund under their Network Plus programme. And for our very first podcast, I'm joined by two absolutely extraordinary women who are part of the CUSP project and who I've known for a couple of years now and had the good fortune to have been with them and with their laughter and their extraordinary attitude to life, their research and their tenacity working for cultures of sustainable and inclusive peace in their contexts of Zimbabwe and of Ghana, respectively. So first of all, I'd like to introduce you to Zaza Muchemwa. Zaza is a poet, playwright, theatre director and arts manager based in Zimbabwe. Zaza is passionate about Zimbabwe and the African story. She believes that good art is a product of experience, learning and a persistent need to quarrel with the status quo. And I'll be coming back to her to ask about quarrelling. Zaza, you are most welcome. Hello to you. Makadini and not in the Nokwa Pano, my Tabasa Nokundida is out in the Weva Noktanga, where I podcast here, Casper. Maita bas, maita bas. Thank you so much, Zaza. And might you just give us a translation in English of what you've just said in Shona? Um, sure. I said, um, uh, hello, thank you uh, for having me and for asking me to be part of the first people uh, to participate in the CASP podcast. Thank you so much, Zaza. It's an absolute pleasure to have you with us. Um, and now I'm going to turn to our second mighty woman to... Mary, Dr. Mary Boatima Setrana, who is Senior Lecturer at the Center for Migration Studies, CMS, at the University of Ghana, Legon. And Mary is an advisory board member of the African Research Universities Alliance, Arua, the Center of Excellence on Migration and Mobility. She participates either as a lead or team member on national, regional and continental policies and capacity building projects. Mary is a Ghana-based researcher on a number of ongoing research projects, including migration decisions and the COVID-19 pandemic project. So you can tell I'm joined by two extraordinary women. And Mary, might you also introduce yourself to our listeners? Listen, me, that's it. That's a far away. Mary, thank you so much. And might you also give us a translation of what you've just said? Thank you again. And so I'm happy to be part of this morning's um, podcast. It's lovely to have you with us. First of all, Zaza, I'd like to come to you. And I just wonder, do you have a funny story that you might share with us to start us off? Well, not necessarily well, a, a funny story, but more of uh, something that I encountered over WhatsApp that I found quite funny <laughs> and heart, heartwarming. It was a video of a, of a young boy who was singing a Bob Marley song 
Three little birds upon my doorstep. I forget the title now. Oh my goodness. But I know the long and short of it, the little boy was singing earnestly. And sometimes he wasn't singing exactly the lyrics of the songs. So you'd make some imitations of it and you'd make some makeup sounds. I love that. And I love you know, mentioning something that I think we've all experienced, which is just these sudden moments of joy and laughter that can ping into our phones and that have actually been part and parcel of the experiences we've all been having of the pandemic where, you know, we've been separated from people who might otherwise make us laugh. And so I'm just thinking as a, as a theatre director that that story must really make you think, you know, that little boy's concentration must really have made you think. Mike, can you, you speak a little more about um, the work that you've been doing as a, as a theatre director and you know, why that little story might speak to that in particular? I think what, what, what really resonated with me, like you said, is that, that concentration and that earnestness and I, I think that earnestness is, is what I always look for uh, when I direct a play, when I work mm. with actors, when I work with playwrights. Mm. And those are the things that really move me. You approach it, a, a piece of text mm. and um, you read it with the actors and then mm. you start hearing feedback in terms of their impressions of the text and, um, and how whilst they, they have varied impressions of it, there are very there are a lot of communal things that connect um, that that make everyone connect with the text. Mm. Uh, maybe just looking at even uh, I'll give an example of uh, Widows, uh, the stage reading that I direct, directed Widows by Ariel Dorfman, and how it was it's set in a fictional country, uh, probably somewhere in South America, um, but for the Zimbabweans within the room it really resonated with them because it touched on, on a lot of things that affected us, that affect us as, as Zimbabweans, where you're living in a country where authority is heavy handed. And then of course you have instances of hearing that there's some people who have disappeared. You have had mm. people who have had things happening to them because they have quarreled with the status quo. They have expressed their displeasure with how things are happening within the country. So just seeing that how, whilst a text can be specific to a geographical place or a particular time, it can also be universal mm. and, and how it, it, it really moves people in, in regards to their lived reality. So that's one of the things that really move me every time mm. I work on a, on, on a play, every time I work on a text with people, mm. how we all come to this space with our own experiences our own understanding of the world and we connect with certain things that resonate with us but we also connect with new things that give us a, a, a better and a different understanding of our world. Mm. Zaza, I love the way you've just described something that made you laugh taking you straight into earnestness and that it's the earnestness in that small boy and his attempt to get the words right but not quite say it properly that was making you laugh but also where you're seeing that as a really key quality in the work that you do and I really love the way that you've seen that as communal it's the communal earnestness that is almost needed to quarrel with the status quo and that you can move from a story of something that made you laugh to Ariel Dorfman, who is not known as a playwright of comedy. <laughs> and that's just automatically making us laugh. And that's so much that is brutal torture in Dorfman's work. And that 
actually that quality of something that makes you laugh can take you into something earnest is really interesting. Just as a connection to that story, I want to tell you also about my little granddaughter who we've just had loads of snow in Scotland and she's been outside seeing snow and experiencing snow for the first time. And I just saw this extraordinary moment with her where she stood outside and she just looked at me and she said, abai, abai, which is her Tigrinya word for grandmother for me. And she said, it's my snow. And there was this just moment of utter serious wonder. So these combinations of emotion that are so dramatic and so perfect for a stage. And there she is on the stage that is the world, you know, that Shakespeare gave to us with that lovely line of all the world's a stage. And she's walking out onto it and it's full of snow. And it's the first time she's experiencing it. And suddenly it's as though it's all for her as well as all for the world. That was what made my life light up and made me laugh and laugh when she said it, you know, this beautiful poetry in motion in a two-year-old girl. But I'd like to come to you now, Mary, and wonder if you've also got a story for us of something that just made you smile or laugh or an encounter that just kind of lit you up of late. Yeah, thank you very much. And maybe continue from where your granddaughter left you. <laughs> I, I just chose something that I'm not talking about something that made me laugh because I can't even remember any of them now. But something that striked me about my little girl who is just four years. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we are used to eating um, fried plantain. And so <laughs> one time I didn't have the beans, I decided to serve it with palava sauce. When she saw it on the table, she just said, Mommy, no. We don't eat ripe plantain with calabar sauce. We do eat it with beans. And immediately it struck me and I said, you know what? This is my house and I give you what you eat. No, this is not your house. This is our house. And I said, what? I wanted to talk about, but then I just remember, okay. I mean, what she's saying is right. And so from that time, I got the impression I need to be careful the things I say because she was right. This is our house and not my house. Yeah, I, that's, a, that's such a great example. And just for, for people listening, I wonder, Mary, if you could actually um, describe what palava sauce is. How do you make it? Well, the palava sauce is like spinach. So when, when I'm outside Ghana, I use spinach as the um, yeah. replacement for it. Yeah. And we cook it with um, different ingredients. So it tastes very nice. And it's, it's usually eaten with yam or other kinds of plantain, but not the fried plantain. That's lovely. And you're already making me feel quite hungry. Well, again, what I'm really noticing there, both in Zaza's description of communal well-being, but also what your daughter <laughs> reminded you of in the house, um, in the way out of the mouths of babes comes a truth often that will stop us short, was again her insistence on the communal, on the collective. And that means it's plural, not just belonging to Mary. <laughs> And Mary, you're involved in an awful lot of different migration projects at the moment where you're looking at the ways in which people move across borders or return home. And you must be seeing that element that your daughter brought to you of what is mine and what is not mine being enacted in many different contexts. I'm wondering if you might speak a little about some of the the conflicts that you see that migrants and especially migrant women 
are facing around what is theirs or what is taken from them in in migration so my little daughter made me think about the way we see things and i also as a sociologist how i i need to perceive the things that i, I see around me and that also eats into one of the study areas that we've been working with in the among farmers and headers and so here the headers are migrants but some of them are long-term settlers and the farmers are indigents and so that kind of conversation between this is mine this is yours brings about the the conflict between the farmers who are indigenous the long-term settlers who are the headers and so in times of population increase in times of limited resources we begin to see people who have already existed in some peaceful atmosphere beginning to claim what's what belonged to them what they they didn't easily quarrel over because of the scarcity they begin to claim what is theirs and at that point you begin to see those differences between the the headers and the farmers and so in the with the with regards to women um so from my experience with um, these farmers and headers over time i've realized that the although the headers are usually men and the farmers are a mixture of men and women um, the wives of these headers begin to complain because they are there just to follow their husbands. They are there to support their husbands. And so they begin to feel the impact of the conflict on their activities. They, they cannot go to the market again. They cannot leave their children to mingle in the societies. Just because at that point, at the time of the conflict, now the farmers feel, even the women feel that they don't belong. And so once they don't belong, they begin to feel like they begin to feel isolated from the community they have lived in for a long time. And again, even for the um, farm, the women who are farmers, they also feel um, step back. They cannot do the activities because they, there is tension between them. They feel at this point, I'm not sure when I go to the farm, what will happen to me. Maybe some header will come with the animals and run over me or run into my farm and I may not know what to do. And so these kinds of this is mine, this is yours, without coming to an agreement to say, right, this is, we've lived here for long. So let's see how we can manage these resources and live in peace. Mm. Mary, thank you. That's just such a good description of what's at the heart of, um, of CUSP. You know, the question of how, um, when people become afraid that they're not going to have enough, or when they become insistent on this is mine, that's not yours, I'm not sharing. So in a way, those kind of um, moments that we're seeing with the earnestness of children um, that we were just speaking about before, that these are at the heart of the conflicts that need to be transformed for us to have sustainable and inclusive peace. So in a way, not talking about how can we fix this for this moment, for this day and resolve it, but how can we do something that will be for the long term, that will be sustainable, that will be inclusive, that will take in all the different needs of the herders and of those who might be indigenous. And I love the way that you've kind of connected that to the little story from your household, your own household of, you know, but mummy, this is our house. <laughs> this isn't just your house. And who gets to do the decision making about how you divide up what you have so that everyone has enough to eat on a particular day. But Zaza, I'm wondering if I could come to you because um, 
that story that Mary has just told, I'm just um, imagining that this is the, the, the kind of material that you might take to produce a drama, that this is the kind of thing where you would hear that story and you would start to think, oh my goodness, what would this look like on stage? So I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about your practice um, with um, Woman Is, um, but also your, your, your dramaturgy, your directing um, of plays and how you might move from that kind of material of conflict and drama that Mary has just told us about with herders and indigenous people um, and migrants to the process of thinking about staging this drama, this conflict for stage and why you think the stage is a really good place for helping people more widely create cultures of sustainable and inclusive peace. Absolutely. Um... I found it incredible how when uh, Mary was talking about the conflicts between the headers and the farmers, how she brought about uh, the, um, the responses uh, of the headers' wives and how they also become part of the conversation uh, because they see how it is affecting them. And, and, and oftentimes I think um, as we listen to stories uh, it's always important to also understand how, even if things are happening between two people, what about uh, how does it affect other people that we don't necessarily see? Um, and, and so that's a part of how I approach uh, my work as, 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 a, as a director uh, when I'm in the Riesa room, but also as a dramatic uh, with the work that I've been doing uh, with uh, woman is because what we did with the with uh, with the work is that um, we did some research where we did some surveys online where we we're asking women uh, very simple questions about um, uh, what the things that affect them in their lives and also what do they spend their time on what uh, what are the things that they are worried about most of the time uh, how do they spend uh, most of the time and what are the things that they aspire to. And from that material, we then have asked uh, playwrights to then uh, pick on uh, different uh, thematic issues and, and then write plays based on that. Um, and, and it was more also in terms of constantly being in conversation also with the playwrights because the playwrights were also female. So they also had their own experiences. So it was quite a blessing in that uh, whilst um, the participants were not the ones who were writing the plays, we also had uh, women writing plays who are also coming from, the, from their own experiences and from their own um, uh, perspectives of what uh, life obtains uh, within Zimbabwe. And that also helped in actually making uh, the plays as, as, as authentic, uh, as, as sincere as possible. Um, yeah, and, and I think the stage is really an important place for us to have uh, conversations about uh, the things that affect our society, about uh, our aspirations for a better society, because there's a certain uh, immediacy that you get when, when people are watching uh, a performance, when people are performing within uh, a performance. Um, that, make, that kind of present tenseness makes you, it gets you to a place where you actively meditate 
on what is being presented with or on also the connections that you make on what is being presented and to your life or on what is being presented to how the, the rest of society uh, operates. And I was a bit worried about uh, the fact that we cannot perform on a live stage uh, uh, because of, of, that, uh, of that reason that I just said, because I was worried that that present tenseness uh, would be taken away. Um, but I, I think in itself in that we recorded the plays and then we did a broadcast of the plays and just seeing the comments that were coming as we're broadcasting the plays on Facebook, how everyone was following what was happening. And they were also even giving their own thoughts uh, on issues to do with mental health, on issues to do uh, with depression during pregnancy, on issues uh, to do with uh, gender-based violence uh, within relationships, whether they're um, uh, formalized relationships or informal, um, which is not a very good term, but yeah, so so yes, a, a huge part of the present tenseness was taken away, but there was a new presence in which we are all gathered at a particular time on online on Facebook mm -hmm. and consuming a piece of performance at the same time and responding that re responding to that in real time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, I found that absolutely fascinating, Zaza, and really a really powerful insight into the way in which you undertake your practice um, so that you ensure an authenticity on the stage. And there's a really interesting paradox within that, in that the stage is so often thought to be a place of fiction. And yet by allowing the power of people's experiences as playwrights and in your playwriting process um, to tap into both stories like the one Mary was telling us just now about the herders and the indigenous peoples um, and the conflicts there, allowing those to be part of the material, but also those that the playwrights have experienced, that that, that, uh, that renders the work authentic, not documentary, but authentic in a way that speaks to the powerful, powerfully into the situations of people. But that connection that you've just made to live performance and then almost a, a kind of liveness to broadcast, you know, so a Facebook live or a WhatsApp live or a Zoom live performance. Even if you then watch it back, having recorded it, there's still a space where, as you said, those comments can come in and you feel the audience not so much going oh, or ooh, or clapping or laughing when they're live in the theatre, but you get a different sense of that in the comments as well. Um, so that maybe what we're, we're getting with, with performance and maybe what we are enabling and strengthening in the institutions of broadcast media or of theatre production under the conditions of the pandemic is a way of strengthening those institutions that are so important to peace building, making the theatre a stage that is stronger and safer and more available to people for that work of meditation that you spoke about. Um, I'm going to come back to Mary in a moment, but Zaz, I just wonder if you could unpack a little bit what you mean by um, meditating, um, because I think that's quite an unusual word to use in theatre, 
within the global north. We think of meditation as something that might go with yoga or might go with prayer or might go with religion. And you've used it here um, in the context of meditating on the human condition um, and that being an important role of theatre in society. And I just wonder if you can speak a little from your perspective about that, because I think you're touching on something very important for sustainability of peace here. Yes. Um, when I speak in terms of meditation, I think of it in terms of being in a place where we, we can be contemplative where we can um, experience things as they come and processing them and you know just singularly focusing on what is happening of uh, being singularly within that moment and and really uh, processing what is happening within that moment and and, and not necessarily meditating meditating in the sense of uh, clearing away the mind but maybe clearing away the space to uh, for us to be open to what is being presented to us and then of course then processing and responding to that and and i do think it's really interesting that you have um you've turned to the theater of ariel dorfman and um to susan laurie parks um but also to Bertolt brecht in some of your work and i just wonder um, I'm certainly someone who's been very influenced by Brecht's work myself in my own theatre practice and also in my intellectual practice because of the way that he commented on stage on characters and also insisted that the stage might be a place for that kind of openness. Um, I wonder if you could maybe just say something a little about those playwrights that you've worked with and how they open the stage up. Okay. Um, uh, yes, I particularly love uh, Brecht's work um, because um, he, da he did append our notions of how our societies work and uh, whether they were working or not at that particular time and also brought forth a, a different kind of learning towards creating systems uh, that are sustainable or systems that actually uh, make for equitable societies. And of, of course, he has been labeled um, a communist uh, playwright or a socialist playwright. But I, I love how he exposed the ills of uh, capitalism and how he saw a correlation with um, how a patriarchy feeds very much into capitalism and vice versa. And how it was important as well, also dismantling uh, patriarchy how we, can, we have to also get to a place where we have to really think deeply about uh, the systems that uh, really drive our society. And mm -hmm. I, I am very attracted to that because I live in a, in a country that has uh, decided to be either communist at some point and then socialist at, at some point, and then capitalist, socialist, we were not sure, um, trying out all these different things. And... Um, you're seeing how all of these uh, systems, there were shortcomings uh, within those systems. And uh, those shortcomings always adversely affect uh, uh, women and adversely affect uh, uh, vulnerable people like uh, children and, and others. Um, so I, I, that's, how, uh, that's why I, I connect so much uh, with his work. And 
And I'm always within that space of contemplating that, okay, yes, I have a problem with the way that my, my, my society is made up, but what are the solutions? How can we create uh, systems that are, that, are, that are just, that, are equi that, that produce equitable societies, uh, but at the same time are sustainable? Maybe it's a hybrid of the systems that are already there. Maybe it's about mm. uh, completely imagining um, a new systems altogether. Mm. Um, yeah, and and I I, I like um, uh, Susan Laurie's uh, Park's work in that uh, um, she she writes a lot about um, her, her characters, um, uh, black people within America and their experiences and. Um, the shortcomings of the society within, within which they, they exist. And what I love is that uh, she, she bends a lot of rules uh, of, of writing or if, of even making theater. And um, she creates her own imaginings of what the, what, um, the theater should work like. And, and, and I've always liked that. Um, and I, I like things that are a bit uh, uh, different uh, from from the norm, and so you also then have you with within all the characters that she can create with within a play. Uh, there's no character that is uh, one dimensional. There's no character that is being used as a as a stick or as as as, as punishment to others. But each of those characters are very clear reflections of different people within that society. And they can also be, they, sometimes they're also vehicles for um, the messages from the different uh, parts of, of, of that society. And uh, I love the, her female characters, how they are complex and how she's also quite unforgiving towards them in that uh, you have <laughs> this, uh, <laughs> you see how even if the odds are stacked against a character, you also see their own failings, how they end up being in whatever situation they are in uh, because of the particular choices that they decide to make. So it, it's, they're not characters that are just there with things happening to them. They are also characters that are making active choices uh, towards their own destiny, sometimes to the betterment of their lives, sometimes to the, for the worst. Mm. Zaza, thank you so much. That's um, I love the way that you've really um, opened up kind of the the playwriting of the world and, and, and drawn on the resources of those who've lived, as Brecht said himself, in, in difficult times. He has that amazing line in one of his most famous poems, the poem Andy Nachgeboren and um, to those who come after. And he opens it with wirklich wir leben in finsteren Zeiten in German, which means really we live in dark times. But you've just gone into um, his work and Suzanne Laurie Park's work to, to look at the complexity of the characters that they put on stage, the way in which they're often unresolvable um, you know, in Brecht and in Susan Laurie Parks's characters, the way that the playwright quarrels with the characters, to use your words, Zaza, um, in order to try and draw on the resources that might help show the ways or create openings for us to imagine 
a different world that might be more sustainable, more inclusive, more equitable, more peaceful. Um, and that you haven't, in your practice, Lazi, you haven't said, well, I won't read Brecht because he was a man, or I won't read Brecht because he's from the North, or I won't read Brecht because not everything about him was perfect. But you said, I'll read his playwriting for what it can offer to us to help us meditate and open a space in which we might be resourced by the stage and resourced by the stage to have the energy to think through what a culture of sustainable peace might be. So, so Mary, I'm going to turn to you now because I think there's almost a reverse part of the conversation here. Um, from your herders and indigenous people and your migrants. And I'm just thinking that in working with migrants in the field, um, you must also be seeing drama and be seeing conflict and be seeing all kinds of different characters. Um, and I know that in migration research, we also need to do a lot of analysis. And um, what Zaza might also say is meditation in order to open out what we're seeing to new understandings. So I wondered if you could maybe talk a little bit about um, what it's like for you when you're working in the field of migration, when you're in the field of migration, working with migrants on a day-to-day -day basis, um, and then what you do when you're working with what we often call data, um, with your field notes or with your surveys, and how you think about those, how you analyse those, what that's like for you at your desk when you're doing that. Thank you very much, Alison. Yes. Um, so let me just say that when, I, when I'm in the field doing migration and conflict, sometimes I feel I'm scared. <laughs> it's sometimes frightening because of the issues, especially when the conflict is still ongoing and not resolved. But maybe coming back to the issues of migration, yeah, what are some of the, the, the main issue, especially when you want to deal with migrants and um, in a conflict situation, you need to gain the trust of the people, which is very, very important. So the, the kind of entry you give to your, or the kind of approach you give to your entry is very important. You need the people to trust you. And we are talking about trust. It's about language, it's about food, it's about the, the way of life of the people. How are you able to integrate? How are you able to blend with it before you can get the kind of information you need from them? So that is one thing that um, we need to, take care of and that is one thing that guides us when we are doing the field work. So even in terms of migrants, I, I remember some of my studies and some of the nuances I'm finding when you are a migrant. I mean, in Ghana, when you have traveled to Europe or to North America, there is some perception about how how you are. You have come from the, the rich, you have come from the country made of gold. And so there's some kind of perception. And so I imagined myself as somebody who had just returned and haven't interviewed returned migrants. Once they knew that I had also returned, the conversation was different. They were much more receptive compared to if they didn't know that I was also a returned migrant. There's some kind of consciousness or something that binds us together that helps with the data collection. But again, I should also talk about my position as a female, which also sometimes guides 
or maybe sometimes helps, sometimes interrupts the, the way we collect data. And so, for instance, talking about the migrant headers and the indigenous farmers, among the headers, they are a group of, um, they, they are a, patriarchy, a patriarchal system um, inherit, sort of inheritance. And so the male dominance is very um, prominent. And I had to interview the women. I remember one time I, in I interviewed the wife of a malam. And after the interview, the wife was called into the room to be scolded. And so they came out and I saw the woman with a different face. So I called one assistant and asked what was happening. And she said, um, the man said, I didn't seek permission before talking to the wife. So the wife had to recall to recall all that she said to me, to the husband again. I was called second time to be questioned on the things I said and heard from the wife. And some of the information were taken out to a seat for me, for me to take what they wanted me to take away. And so it, it depends on their different um, positionalities that count here. My position as a female, my position as, a, as an educated person, and whether I am within a um, a situation where patriarchy is dominant or a situation where um, uh, matrilineal is what they, they recognize. Mm -hmm. Again, coming to the issue of data, how do we analyze all these data? Yeah, sometimes I, I always tell myself the most confusing or the most complex data I have collected is migration and conflict, especially among farmers and the migrant herders. I, I, I keep on saying, okay, this is the most difficult thing because it's confusing that in a conflict situation, usually we describe it as we describe the, um, the parties as one being a perpetrator, one being a victim. But in this case, everybody is a victim. And so at what point do you, um, what do you, how do you just oppose the data and what do you take out, out of it? And so that needs a bit of being um, careful and also taking a lot of, um, methodologies together, participants, observation, trying to be among the people, understand their culture, understand their way of life, trying to mingle with them to understand them from a, the point of view of um, the point from which they are talking to you about. And then when you take the farmers, also you need to sometimes focus group discussions just for them to agree on the, some of the things they, they might have said individually. So yes, I, I do some in-depth interviews one-on-one, -on -one, but then sometimes I also do focus group discussions. Sometimes even in the, in the I remember one of the methodologies, I was supposed to travel from um, one of the towns to a very, it's a, it's a typical village. And in the taxi, the taxi wasn't frequent, so I had to wait. In the taxi, the, I was looking at the causes of the conflict and some of the attitude towards the farmers and the headers. And right in the car was data collection. The taxi said, the taxi driver gave a story of how he had moved from the village and because he had evacuated the wife and family to the city and another woman said she was going to see if there was anything left to, for her in the farm she left some weeks ago i mean that right there was information and the people didn't mind stopping on the way to tell me the 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 effect of the conflict on the activities the same way you go to the headers, and I remember I had to travel, you know, in that community, they start work around 4 a.m. The farmers go to farm around 4 a.m. The headers also have to feed their animals. So I had to wake up at 4 a.m., go to the market, and it was just like a daytime market. And you had to travel long distances to be able to do this. And all these I needed to understand mm. so that I could appreciate the culture, the, the, the approach and the perspective from which they were 
they were experiencing the issues. Maybe let me um, let me end here so that if you have any questions, I can come yeah, back again. Yeah, that's just, I really love the parallels that I'm seeing between your work. So between your work, Mary, and your work, Zaza, um, and just listening to you there, Mary, I'm just, um, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing all the characters, you know, the taxi driver and the way that you are listening, 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 the way there's almost a vigilance in the field to all the nuances and dynamics and that those for you as a woman, depending on whether you're in a patriarchal or a, or, or a, a matriarchal society, um, are shifting and changing the way you're having to shift your own position, the way you're having to attend to the drama of the moment. You know, what, what do you have to do? What do you have to backtrack on? What do you have to change? What is being required of you? Um, what is it the taxi driver can help you with? And I think, you know, those of us who've been field researchers and done anthropological or geographical research, we know that it is the taxi drivers who are our they are our treasure trove, aren't they, Mary? They are the people who just, it's extraordinary what you can learn when you're having a conversation in, in a taxi cab. But I also just, I'm really appreciating that you started your answer to that, that question that I threw your way with, I don't always feel safe. I don't always <laughs> feel safe. And, and I think that's also probably true for you, Zaza, when you're actually involved in theatre and theatre making, that theatre making, you know, for all the structures and the health and safety and the care, care that we take with lighting rigging, it's not always safe. You know, we can all tell stories about someone who sprained their ankle on stage or the way that you may not completely be in control of what it was that you thought you'd put on stage because of the way that people might respond to it or what they might read into it and that in certain places in the world that's 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 more dangerous than others so there's some just beautiful dimensions i think that are coming out from what you're both saying to me um we've been talking for nearly 45 minutes and i am aware that we are really only just scratching the surface of what can come out of um a conversation with these these two women with Mary and with Zaza um, from Ghana and um, Zimbabwe respectively, um, working professionally um, as a migration researcher in Ghana um, for Mary and then as a professional theatre maker and poet um, for Zaza in, in Zimbabwe. Um, I'm going to draw our conversation to a close now and um, just um, come back to those um, those meditative thoughts, those maybe metaphorical thoughts and um, a little bit of the drama within. So we started off with stories of children and I'm wondering um, for both of you, maybe if we might just come um, to draw our conversation to a close with stories of animals. Um, and um, Zaza, I'm wondering if um, you might um, come up with an animal that you really relate to when you're thinking about these themes or that is, um, important for you to meditate with? Um, I hadn't really, I was thinking about it, but I didn't really come to a decision on what the animal is. But the one that is just coming into my mind right now at this moment is a chameleon. Um, yeah. uh, maybe also just responding to, to, to what Mary was talking about in terms of her experiences as a researcher on the ground and how you have to kind of be a chameleon because you have to to relate to to the different people in particular ways 
so that you ease people enough for you to be able to do your work. And maybe sometimes you have to backtrack and sometimes you have to be invisible somebody because maybe you might, you don't want to offend, but also, of course, also as a researcher, also trying not to insert yourself into, uh, into the work that you're doing. But I also see how uh, being chameleon like is also in it speaks to my experience as a theater maker in Zimbabwe, mm-hmm. how uh, sometimes even is in, when I'm in the rehearsal room, but also even when I'm writing, I, I'm, I'm having to, I have to think in terms of who's watching, who's listening, and mm-hmm. how can I subvert uh, the message without um, raising the ire of um, of the censors or the ire of people who uh, actively defend unjust systems. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's where I am in terms of animal. And I, I feel like I'm getting pretty good at being a chameleon. <laughs> that's absolutely wonderful. Zaza, I wonder if you could tell us what the Shona word is for a chameleon. Ruaivi. Uh, a waivi, waivi. Uh, it's um, R W A I V H I. Raivi. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. And Mary, can I come to you? Is there an animal that's coming to mind at the moment in our conversation? Yes. Um, maybe the. I don't think the animal may sound um, the right one, but the one that comes um, in mind is parrot. In in my local language, we call it ako. And Akko. that is because, yes, Akko. When I was growing up, it's only the rich people who had Akko. Mm-hmm. Until I grew up to know that almost everybody could have it so long as you know where it's sold. But maybe in terms of the piece, I'm thinking of um, what's in our local language we call um, Oguama or um, Ojain. We call it Ojain. Ojain. So when we say Ojain, it's another word for lamp in the English uh, language. So um, I'm seeing it as that because after working in the field of migration and especially the conflict migration issues, I, I, I think that where everybody thinks he's so wise and has the solution, never works. We need somebody and that's the character of a lamp. A car is coming, the car blows, you want to do something, sometimes it doesn't hear. I don't even think it hears, so I don't know whether it's pretense or what, but sometimes you need to chase after it before it gets off the road for you to move ahead. And so sometimes we need to um, behave, we are not seeing the things around, and maybe try to accommodate, try to compensate, try to um, compromise. I think that's the right word I'm looking for, to compromise in certain situations so that we can um, resolve the issues at hand. Yes, we acknowledge our differences. We acknowledge that we we have access. We are entitled. We have rights. Yes, but we should realize that the world has gone beyond our needs and what we think. And then going back to what my little child said, I was thinking of my position as a wife married to my husband and she a daughter and she needs to listen to me because I make decisions. But this is a world, you know, I, I don't think I could have said the same thing to my dad. No. I'm sure I would have gotten about two slaps after that. But I mean, looking at where I stand, I had to think about it and realize that no, she wasn't making a mistake. She was actually right. And so thinking about the lamb, we need to, um, that's how I feel we need to think of in peace build. We need to sometimes let things go. We need to compromise. We need to accommodate each other's differences and that can help us have sustainable peace. Thank you.
Oh, thank you, Mary. What a beautiful vision that you've both given of us of, of the chameleon and um, of the parrot and the lamb. Um, and it's just making me, me think as well of, um, I was addressing that question a little to myself as well and thinking if I was being fair in this conversation and making it a communal conversation, I should also put myself on the spot. Um, and just thinking that the, the, the creature that comes to mind for me, and it's quite an unusual one in this context, but is the wolf. Um, and it's not the wolf as the fierce animal um, that we associate with killing, but actually it's the wolf as the one that will foster um, cubs, that will um, take wolf cubs in if um, they are in need of milk. Um, the mother wolf that was um, you know, the founding animal for Rome, but is also in the mythology of the Gallic um, peoples. Um, and that that animal for me connects to the qualities of fostership, which go beyond initial hospitality or initial entertainment or initial welcome, but actually go much deeper into looking after yourself so well that you will produce enough milk for the children. Um, and for all the children, maybe not just your own children um, or for children who might come to you, that there's something about needing to sustain people with milk um, that is um, more than, say, giving people a palm wine or a glass of water at the start of the day, but is enough to nourish them um, and enough to include them uh, so that no one's left out, so that everyone's part of the, the story, so that um, everybody is um, able to take their place in the human drama that we live with. So I'd like to um, draw us to a close at this moment. And I'm going to do that by, first of all, thanking our um, wonderful people behind the scenes, to Hannah um, or, and to Jen in particular, but also to thank Gracia um, and uh, for her work behind the scenes, um, uh, for what they've done to just get us to the point where we can launch this podcast with um, Mary and Zaza. I hope you all agree that Mary and Zaza have just been really extraordinary first guests. I certainly could listen to you and to your stories of your work um, all day. And I really hope that you might be up for coming and joining us again on a podcast as we develop our work within CUSP, within the Cultures of Sustainable Peace project. And because it's a podcast for International Women's Day, I thought I would end with a poem that I've been writing. So it's not quite perfect, but I think there's something about us as sharing things that aren't yet completely polished in these moments under the pandemic that is important and is part of the work. But it's a thank you to the women who've been sustaining me through the last couple of weeks, where I feel as though on every level of my life, I've been in some kind of conflict and struggling to find what might sustain me and what might actually help me through on a personal and on a professional level. And in the midst of this, um, as I was at the lowest of lows, I was in those places where I just thought, I don't know how I'm going to carry on. I remembered that over the last two weeks, I have been surrounded by women who have brought me gifts. Women who don't even know that they brought me gifts, don't even know what they've done to sustain me. Women like Mary and Zaza. Um, and this is a poem to the women to say thank you. From Gabi, the gift of Fasnacht, Carnival. From Kathy, the gift of wise, deep and long experience. From Zoe, love beyond motherhood. From Yolande, 
It's Not My Time To Die. From Rema, The Gift Of Flowers. From Piki, Aroha Nui, South Poles, Salt, Tears and Snot. From Teresa, The Boundaries. From Jenny, The Exception That Proves The Rule. From Sarah, Sensitivity From Afar. From Ellie, The Wild Moors Of Our Youth And Their Life In Age. From Alliston, Purring. From Nardensua, Honest Comradeship. From Lauren, A Tough Filter and Tough Calls. From Hannah, Gold Leaf. From Jen, Gentleness and Time. From Bella, The Start of a Snowball. From Gracia, Grace, Her Name. From Rima, the gift of her rage and agony to parallel my own. From Amal, a pure dead, brilliant Glaswegian heart. From Deborah, the best news and ululations. From Chippo, streams of dancing. From Christina, gracias, muchos. From heaven, colours, wind, balloons. From Pinar, jungles of happiness from Julie, nourishing teas and words, from Netsanu, simple, easy love, from Dee, a forest walk, from Katie, a cold swim in a frozen sea, from my grandmother, wool and needles moving, from Bridget, cloth, from Lavinia, the unbelievable lightness of laughter, from my mother, stoicism, and the Dale-Dyke Dam, from Caroline der Merveille, from Chisoma Recognition, from Louise an Instant Lad, yes, from Maggie Owls, from Evelyn The Next Step, from Marjorie Urgency, from My Namesake, the sharing of poison and hate and care, from Mary Madasi, Analysis, Mingling, sustainable peace from zaza maitabas earnestness quarrels with the status quo and meditation from kareen the music that breaks the dam and from sienna the arms that will not let go mary madasi thank you morantang thank you all for listening. It was a clap. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>